Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Would you please welcome Columbia recording artist, Bob Dylan. Never Ending Stories, a podcast about Bob Dylan and the Never Ending Tour. I'm Ian. I'm Evan. And I'm Steve. And today's show is June 6th, 2004, at the Borgata Hotel, <laughs> Casino, and Spa Event Center in beautiful Atlantic City, New Jersey. The band is Bob Dylan on vocals, piano, and harp, Stu Kimball on the guitar, Larry Campbell on the pedal steel. George Roselli on the drums, and Tony Garnier on the bass. Can I just say quick, because we saw a photo of this place. Oh, uh, yeah. I, believe, <laughs> I believe you shared it, Ian. I did. Uh, I would it's recommend, if you, before, yeah, before you listen to the show, just look up the Borgata <laughs> Casino and Spa. Don't forget the spa. It just will enhance your experience listening to this show, I think. It's just very luxurious. You just think that like Christopher Maltesante was probably in the audience. Exactly. Maybe Paulie Walnuts was lurking <laughs> around. The uh, Borgata, the Borgato Events Center. That's right. Well, we know. I mean, Bob uh, uh, had multiple instances of appearances on The Sopranos. Uh, not, you know, himself actually starring in the show, but his music was used to great effect several times on the show. So On the last well, episode, even. That's right. AJ in the fucking Jeep. Uh, anyways, this was your pick, Evan. What, uh, what do you got for us here? <clears throat> well, it's simple. It's a great show. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, really, it's like... What we always talk about, I guess, um, between us and just back behind the scenes is like, what what parts, what eras are we interested right now most in individually? Like, what do you tend to gravitate toward on your own? And to me, at the moment, uh, I find that I'm really interested in looking at shows from the early 2000s mm. for some reason. And I think... It's I don't know it's it's hard to say exactly why but I think when I'm what I'm always looking for these days is like sort of untapped veins of um, eras and moments in in Dylan's career where I feel like what was he doing there like what what was it, it's sort of like unclear exactly what to expect from a show in I don't know two thousand three to at least to me, to right. four, like, you know what the 70s are going to be like. You basically know what the 80s are going to be like. The 90s, to some degree, you know, especially the late 90s, you have an idea. And then there are these other eras and microclimates within Dylan, <laughs> like, uh, live oeuvre, where you just don't know, like, what you're going to get. And that's some of the most exciting stuff, because it's really like wild card hours. And especially in the wake of 
uh, love and theft. I feel like this is a era of like radical of reinvention in on this radical level. That's also a very subtle mm. level. Like huge things are happening, but what what's happening is like kind of this refinement, this um, figuring out who he is in the 21st century, um, which I think is, you know, a huge, one of the great success stories of his career, even more so than his like late nineties comeback moment. I think this period is really where you see him, you know, that the fireworks have happened of all that and like time out of mind. And then here it's like, well, where do you go from there? And it turns out that where he goes is just like into this, place of feeling extremely himself and not in a way that's even um gussied up by like the pomp and circumstance of a comeback it's just now he's here again he and it's as, if, it's as if he never left right and this is the first time that it really feels like he is in many ways i feel like it's the first time he feels fully confident on stage in a way that won't wane after this point. Yeah, my first thought when you picked this was that, wow, this is only five days before the Bonnaroo show, which Mm -hmm. is a very, I think, iconic, never-ending tour show from this period. It was a show that's on my short list to be talked about on never-ending stories. Definitely. Probably going to wait a little bit farther down the road now, but we will get to that show eventually. What I didn't realize until I started reading a little bit about this period was that this show comes only two days after Stu Kimball, who, for those who don't know, is the longest tenured guitar player of the Never Ending Tour era. He was That's in right. Bob's band from 2004 to 2018, played 1,323 shows. This was, this was only like two days into his tenure with the band, and he had only auditioned to be in this band, like, on Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> so, you know, as we learned in, like, the J.J. Jackson experience from the previous episode in our 1992, uh, May 9th, 1992 episode, it's like, guitar players just drop in. And Bob basically throws them into the deep end of the pool. And we'll get into this as we talk about the show, but I would not have thought that Stu Kimball was, like, basically a rookie Right. When he played this show, it does not sound like a guy who is tentative or, you know, is still figuring out what his place in the band is going to be. Uh, he's a big part of why this show is great. Hmm. And uh, it's just another fascinating wrinkle with Bob. You know, Evan talking about how confident Bob was feeling at this point. He also felt confident in his players eventually, you know, right. apparently, that he could just throw them into the situation. And again, this, you know, playing Atlantic City, that's one thing. He's going to be playing Bonnaroo not long after this. I mean, that's a huge gig for him. Uh, but that trust was warranted because uh, Stu definitely delivers yeah. uh, at this the show. Evidence, the evidence is all here. It's, um, yeah, so this tour was a, this show was the third of a seven date mini tour uh and Bonnaroo was the very end of that on June 11th there in 2004 um Bob had been touring the states earlier in 2004 in the first leg he did like a 33 date run again with the two drummers thing uh we've got George Roselli on the drums here the first leg of the 2004 tour he'd had Richie Hayward also doing 
uh, the, the you know second percussion uh, presence of Little on Feet, stage. by the way. Little, little feet. feet, exactly. One of the great all-time drummers, uh, Richie Hayward. You're saying? Yes. All right. And well, <laughs> Roselli is great too, but like Richie Hayward, definitely with Little Feet. I'm not going to say anything bad about any drummers anymore because of the uh, reception to the yeah, David Kemper comments on, on episode one. <laughs> I'm telling you, Richie Hayward, especially among drummers, like my one of my best friends, Steve Gorman, he's a drummer, worships Richie Hayward. Richie Hayward, he has a great, right. is a great rep. We're going to have to do a Richie Hayward show. Um, but so anyways, after, the, after that, that first leg of the 2004 tour, that first 33 dates, Hayward's out. Uh, and uh, who was the guy on guitar before? It was uh, Quella, I think, um, uh, that Stu Kimball replaced. Um, but so this is like a totally new kind of band to some extent. You know, uh, Larry is still here and George and Tony, obviously. But these guys have not, you know, really figured out how to play together yet. Um, and so I think that what you're getting in this kind of show is like a trial by fire sort of thing. Everyone just like thrown into the fray a week before one of the biggest shows that Bob has played any time recently at Bonnaroo, and they're either going to sink or swim, and clearly we see uh, we see the results here. Um, it's also notable, I think, to me at least, this is like almost perfectly half the halfway point between Love and Theft and before Modern Times. It's uh, June 2004, so we're about right. two and a half years since Love and Theft came out, but we're still like two and a half years until Modern Times is going to hit. Um, and that's a really interesting kind of time period, I think, which speaks to your concept there, Evan, of just like, what was Bob doing in 2004, right? Because we're out of the, you know, like, huge, like, you know, extraordinary leap forward that happened in 2001. And really 2002, I think, was the defining year of the Love and Theft tour, um, or the Love and Theft era of the NeverEnding tour. Um, but we're still nowhere near um, modern times, even, you know, being in the public conscious. He didn't even start to uh, record and rehearse those songs for... 18 months after this show. Well, um, you, so you do get a song from it on, or don't you? No, I'm thinking of, mm. I'm just getting the classic mix up of Beyond the Horizon and Moonlight. That's <laughs> mix up. He plays Moonlight here, but yeah. he plays Moonlight. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's uh it's, it's a really kind of uh, fascinating liminal space because we're in between one record and not yet into another. Um, and so for a lot of people, I think they think 2004 is like the Chronicles year, because Chronicles comes out three or four months after this show, and that's really the most significant thing that happens to Bob in between Love and Theft and Modern Times in terms of like a put-together kind of product rollout release with a lot of publicity behind it. Um, but this is this is also what was going on. I think it's just as big, if not bigger, um, than, uh, uh, you know, than the book release, because uh, this band just sounds absolutely fire, absolutely amazing. What? Another thing that I think is important is that this falls in the period of time where Bob stopped playing guitar yes. and he was playing keyboards. And at the time, that was not something I was digging at all. Like when I look back on my life as a Bob Dylan fan, the, the period where I saw him the most was 99 to 2004. And it was because I was a big Bob Dylan fan. It was also because I was young and single and I didn't have a life. So it was easier for me to just drop everything and go see Bob if he was anywhere in my, you know, anywhere close to my part of the country. And I saw Bob in 2004. This is another show that I think I want to talk about sometime on Never Ending Stories. I saw him on election night, 2004. Whoa. In, Osh in, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. 
Uh, what's the, what's up with the name of that place? <laughs> it, I, it's, it's a Native American okay. word. Right. Uh, you like know, Chicago. Lot. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what it means. I don't know what tribal affiliation it would be, but it's definitely like a Native American derived word. It was inside of like a, it was at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh in a gymnasium, if I remember correctly. Beautiful. I don't think it was an auditorium. Beautiful. <laughs> a college basketball arena on election night 2004. I cannot think of a better place to see Bob Dylan perform. I remember going to the show. Uh, John Kerry had a chance when I left. Uh, I, I, I uh, ate a pot brownie. and I got very fucked up. And then the show was amazing. And I I got back to my friend's house, and George W. Bush was running away with it. Hell yeah. So it was a very sort of heavy night. But that was the last time I saw him for a few years, and it was because of the keyboard thing. I just wasn't digging him on keyboard as much. And it's interesting listening to this show because, I don't know, maybe it's just the visual of him playing keyboard I didn't like at the time. Because musically, you know, I wasn't missing him playing guitar. And it was actually, you know... It was fun. One of the fun things about this show is how much Bob plays harp. Yes. There's a lot of harmonica, and we'll get to that when we talk about it, because uh, there's some beautiful harmonica playing, and I feel like that becomes a real rarity, you know, it, it, as we progress in the 21st century with the NeverEnding Tour. Yeah, it becomes more of a thing where he just puts it out harmonica. for, like, one song or something per show, and that's kind of the harp moment. Or he might take it out. And then he'll reconsider and put it away. <laughs> I kept seeing him do that, too. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, the- Not tonight. <laughs> so you had been seeing Bob. At the, I was going to ask about this, actually, Stephen, because this, so the, you know, the 92 show, we know you you were just a teenager. You hadn't gotten into Bob yet. 97, you know, Time Out of Mind, you, I think you talked about, like, was your first kind of, like, uh, immersion into the world of Bob when that record came out. By this point, you are, you're in the deep end. You're ahead at this point. Yeah, I mean, Time Out of Mind was the first new Bob Dylan record that I loved. Like, right. I was already a fan. I was becoming, like, I was already obsessed with him when that record came out. But now it was like, oh, Bob Dylan's a contemporary artist. He's sure. not a legacy artist. Now it's, you care about his new records. And then Love and Theft comes out and it proves, oh, that wasn't a fluke. Were you really into Love and Theft when it came out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, you don't want to... It was right around nine. I think it came out on nine eleven. Sure did, brother. So you <laughs> That's know, right. I, I don't want to get into the whole like that fateful morning, Tuesday morning, right? Sky you know, full of fire, uh, pain pouring down. All the cliches, Tweedly Dom and Tweedly D. That's right. Um, you know, love and theft. It was, and this is another cliche about that record, but I think it's true. It's just like a funnier record than Time Out of Mind. And yes, that's it's looser. Correct. correct. It's, I don't <laughs> and, think that, uh, that anybody would argue with that. Yeah, and it was so it, it felt more like one of his '60s records in a way, in, mm. in, a, in a funny way than definitely. Time Out of Mind definitely felt like this is an older Bob Dylan, whereas Love and Theft it was almost like I'm no, going to go back to how it was in the '60s, but I'm not going to recreate what I did in the '60s. It's it's more of just that spirit. You're saying you can always come back, but you can't come back all the way? Is that what you're saying? He could also be saying that he was so much older then and that he was younger than that now. I could say he was bringing it all back home. Are you saying you can... (laughs) They say you can't repeat the past, but... uh, What do you mean you can? can. What do you mean you can't? Of course you can. (laughs) Well, and this is a conversation we're going to have at some point in this episode, the Love and Theft versus Time Out of Mind conversation. Yeah, weren't you going to say something? You had some bombshell that you were teasing in. Are you going to save it for later? I'm saving it for later. We got to wait until we get in there. 
I think right. it's good. We want to get into when we're talking about the show because I think because there is a lot of love and theft songs. There is one time out of mind song I believe that mm-hmm. for me is a highlight yeah. of the show. Yes, but we'll get to that later. I did, I wanted to follow up on the Stu Kimball thing quick because there's another fun. I guess this would be a footnote with him, you know, before he joined the uh, the Never Any Tour band. This is like almost 20 years earlier. He plays on When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky, rhythm guitar from Empire Burlesque. Mm. Because apparently he was a part of this dance rock band called Face to Face. Not okay. the <laughs> not the not, not the Southern California punk pop band from the uh from the from the nineties, I don't know if you know that band. Uh, <laughs> nope. we, we got any nineties no. pop punk fans out there? <laughs> Big choice, which I believe was ninety seven. You have like the self titled with the black and white cover. Uh, not that band. This is like a dance rock band that was apparently connected in some way to Arthur Baker, who was a big producer of like right you know, sort of he synth was... pop at the time, and he was brought in by Bob to do uh, Empire Burlesque. And that's that how for him. He brings in Stu Kimball. It's just an interesting connection because when you listen to Stu's playing, you wouldn't peg him for a guy that was in a dance rock band in the 80s. Uh, you know, we talked about J.J. Jackson uh, being this very aggressive, almost like hard rock guitar player at times, especially during uh, on that 92 show we talked about. Whereas Stu just seems like a classic, uh, you know, nimble blues player you know a guy who's like an assassin you know very tactical with (laughs) his playing blues assassin where (laughs) and i mean that and i mean that as a compliment because when you listen to this show and again it's amazing realizing that he was you know new to the band the the like the the licks that he's playing they just seem uh they're very powerful and they add so much to the songs but like they don't ever seem uh like over the top too much right you know it, it we're in, in the way that jj jackson's playing was in that 92 show in a great way i think but uh it's just an interesting i i feel like there's so many characters like this in bob's history like where they show up in one spot and then they like return come back again later on like Ian yeah. wallace on the last episode that we talked about exactly exactly I have to confess, it's hard for me to keep track of guitarists. Um, This is just something that might dog the show uh, from time to time moving forward. But I can't keep players straight on uh, baseball type teams, uh, sports style teams, you know. And so also when it comes to people, individual like hired gun guitarists, it's hard for me. So I would would appreciate maybe if you guys ever want to point out a, a fun physical trait or detail about one of these guys from time to time. I think it would be helpful for me and perhaps the listeners to, uh, to situate them in, a, in the mind's eye. Uh, what, what do these fellows look like? You know, do they, do they have scars or glasses or Stu um, Kimball is a white guy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, yeah. It, it's difficult with the guitar players because I feel like there's a Bob Dylan. There's like a Bob Dylan guitar player. Like uniform, where you got to have the wide brim hat. Yeah, right. you got to have like an old timey suit, uh, some sort of like creative facial hair combination. Mm. Definitely yeah, a mustache. That's typical. Not a full beard, but like a, a well sculpted like goatee of some kind. Um, so I think the physical 
attributes is going to be difficult. Here, I've got them up but, on the screen, Evan, if you want to take a gander. Oh, that's wow. From his, that's from his website. So this is that's, Stu Kimball. That's Stu Kimball. Yeah. Oh, boy, StuKimball.com it does, it pulls no punches. You look, I'm looking at this guy, He's he has a sort of, uh, he has a very chiseled, um, grizzled face. He's doing a mean mugging kind of look. He's got a black ha- a hat tipped just a, a over his eyebrows at a jaunty angle. Some sort wearing, of beaded necklace. Uh, it's yeah. either a beaded necklace or a small chain. Got a navy blue t-shirt under what is a really statement piece of Western wear with mm. uh, mostly white and kind of a black, um, What do you, whatever you call it when it's like on the shoulders and there's sort of creative stitching. He's holding yeah. a guitar and it looks like he is behind the blinds of a, like in a, in a raining, like a darkened house and, at night, you know, like he's the like shadows a, of blinds. He's like a private detective slash guitar player. I mean, that's he what literally looks like a blues assassin. Blues assassin. Like, literally, exactly. if you, I, I can't say it any other way. He looks. Yeah. I, again, I think that there is a uniform. It's almost like when you go to work at Chili's, you know, they give you like the Chili's outfit with right. the Bob Dylan organization. They're like, hey, here's your wide brim hat. Here's your Western wear. Here's your big you know, jacket. Trim your beard into some sort of like goatee mustache combination. Uh, and then you'll be okay for the band. I feel like I if, was- if you don't have that already like figured out, they'll probably be like, Okay, we'll t- we'll get in touch. Like, it, like, <laughs> it, like if you, he might be like, "What's your boot size?" And if they don't know, then he's like, "Next." Yeah, I think maybe that was the problem during the Empire Burlesque era that Stu was in his pre wide brim hat era, and it's like Bob's like, "I'm going to let you marinate for another 19 years in in Western herbs and spices." <laughs> yeah, then you'll be properly grizzled. Blend of um... one thing that is interesting especially as it pertains to this atlantic city show is that there is a well-known dylanologist i don't know if you guys are familiar with this guy peter stone brown Mm. he posts a lot of things on youtube uh like cool videos of dylan one of the things that comes to mind is he has an excerpt of that interview that jan winner did with bob dylan in like 2007 Mm -hmm. where he's talking about the atomic bomb few frequent dylanologist circles he reviewed this atlantic city show oh and uh, he singled out Stu Kimball in particular for praise. And he said, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Kimball can take his place as one of the top five guitar players to play on stage with Bob Dylan easily. Wow. Throws in the easily. And this is again. Easily. Like his, wow. It's like third show ever with Bob. So I guess we'll decide for ourselves whether we agree with Peter Stone Brown. But, you know, just setting up. That this is a, a big time show and a big time early show for for Stu. Well, the I blues think blues assassin. That the blues assassin, Stu, the blues assassin, Kimball. I think that's the perfect segue into pretty good stuff. I just want to make very clear that um, the show starts with what I think is one of the great underrated Bob Dylan songs. I've come to feel like it is basically. A top ten like sleeper song, like a song mm. that nobody thinks about, but every time it, it comes up, it's like, "What is this? Where's this been hiding?" And that's God knows. God knows. Mm. 
I love that we're repping Under the Red Sky so much on our early show selections. Yes, sir. It's coming not up. only because we got God knows we have Cats in the Well in this show. Cats in the Well was in the last show. Um, I really love this as an intro, especially since it's not Rainy Day Women. I yes. feel like that's <laughs> always the intro song. Uh, does he screw up at the end? I feel like this song ends abruptly. At the Am end I wrong? of God Knows? I'm, I'm, yeah, I feel like there's something missing there. But maybe. I don't know. Maybe maybe it just ends like that. Because I, I thought, you know, again, when you listen to these bootlegs, it's cool to hear mistakes. And I thought, oh, did something get messed up there? I couldn't tell. But yeah, I love that as an intro track for sure on this show. Yes, yeah. it's it's such a great like. Uh, I don't know. It's it has such a a great intro quality because it's like it sounds so much like a classic Dylan song. Like it could have been from the '60s, but it just has this extra little bit of a swagger and uh self-awareness that i associate with his later work um and again it's cool that he opens with kind of an obscure song too but it's such a good rousing type number that it completely delivers it's badass and it's brief and so it just kind of launches out of the gate and then he goes right into um forever young as like number two that's like usually not a second song pick, right? Yeah, it definitely feels like more of an encore song. Yeah, it feels typically. like a later later show kind of pick. I'm sure there are other instances of it being early. I certainly am not a encyclopedic uh, uh, knower of set list orders uh, we'll, like we'll some get folks there. out there. We'll get there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it it is notable. I think is the second uh, the second song here, uh, which is one of the great ones I think in this set. But also signals like. This is the kind of show that you're in for here if you're at this show. Like, if you sit down and you get that intro, that's another thing that's great about this show. They have the great. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the poet laureate of rock and roll, the voice of the promise of the 60s counterculture, the guy who was folk into bedroom rock, who got to make up in the 70s and disappeared into his and substance abuse, who emerged to find Jesus, who was written off as a has been by the end of the 80s, and who suddenly shifted gears. Releasing some of the strongest music in his career, beginning in the late 90s. And ladies and gentlemen, Columbia recording artist, Bob Dylan. That spelled out intro that uh, we all come to know and love over time. Uh, but if you start with that, into God Knows, into Forever Young, you're like, all right, there's there's something happening here tonight. And I think he, he bears that out for the rest of the show. Yeah, you know, when I listen to these shows... I uh, burn them onto CDRs. I like yes. to listen to them that way. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it, it, it put about 50 minutes or so on each disc, so you have a disc one and disc two. And uh, for me, disc two is the superior disc out of these. 
So like the second half of the show, and I'll get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. But the highlight of disc one for me is trying to get to heaven. Mm. Time Out of Mind song that I referenced earlier. That's right. And, uh, you know, on the record, this is like a pretty, you know, sort of stately, medium-paced song. And in this uh, rendition, it's even slower than it is on the record. And you have Larry Campbell, who I, I don't know if we've really talked about Larry yet. And Larry, of course, is nearing the end of his tenure in the band. He's going to be out of the band by the end of 2004. End of the year. But but by this point, he's really become like the utility player of the band. You know, we talked about the El Rey show. He had just joined. He's like the hotshot guitar player, and he's really killing it there. In this show, along with playing guitar, he's doing like a lot of pedal steel. So yeah. He's doing like the Bucky Baxter thing and just delivering beautifully. Uh, on my disc two, the Late Lady Lay version, I think so is good. so great. I love the, the pedal steel. Uh, but I was really loving this trying to get to heaven. And one of the things that was moving me about it, funny enough, is the audience reaction. Mm. I, I, I feel like there was a lot of clapping at lines in this song. Particularly yeah. the line where he says, I'll close my eyes and I wonder if everything is as yeah. hollow as it seems. I noticed that too, that everyone claps at that. And I think it's like... Uh, Worth noting just how lucid and sharp he sounds. Like we we haven't really been talking too much about Dylan's vocal and uh, his, or just how with it or not he seems on from show to show, which is something we should definitely talk about and make a point of because it makes or breaks moments for sure. Um, well, I, well, and yeah, this I think is a great made moment of he sounds really like he's with every word of the song. Yeah, like this song. Moonlight, Lay Lady mm-hmm. Lay, these these quiet songs. Uh, his vocals not only sound great, but he's really ex- being expressive, like Tuned the way, in, yeah. like the way, just the way, like his phrasing. You know, the the, the famous Dylan, Dylan phrasing. He's really teasing words out, just ringing maximum emotion in really subtle kind of ways. But going back to that line where people were clapping, you know, as, if everything is hollow as it seems, mm-hmm. and it, it just takes me back to the you know, the Borgata. Is it Borgata or Borgato? Bor- Borgata. 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 <laughs> casino and spa and people at the Borgata Casino and Spa contemplating the hollowness of life. And I just feel like, yeah, uh, this would be an appropriate setting to hear a song like that. Because there probably are a lot of a lot of older people at the casino at this show. You know, trying to get to heaven before they close the door. That's you know, right. <laughs> See, that's that's a that's a really amazing thing. Is that at a Bob Dylan show, you can uh, you know other other shows people might clap the most at a line like uh, "Tonight's going to be a good night," but uh, 
at at this show it's like um i i wonder if my life is a, a hollow shell or if i have something to live for still and everyone's like I love yeah. the idea of some like down on his luck old schlub who has lost like, you know, $50,000 at the roulette table and like the casino comps him tickets to Bob for that night because they that, want him to like, they want him to stay around and, you know, keep losing more money. And the guy just goes here and like, here's trying to get to heaven and like undergoes some sort of deep spiritual change and puts his life back together. Probably didn't happen, Leaves. but, yeah. but <laughs> I, if you know, it's going to happen, it would, it would be taking place during this song. What thing it's I, what Bob is trying to do is just like get. He's trying to send the message like there's still time. He should Go. have been doing all look. Of, He should have been doing the Christian preaching shit from 1980 at this at show casinos. in 2004. <laughs> well, one thing I was trying to investigate, and I, I was reading Paul Williams. I was reading some of the Dark Princess books. And they didn't have anything on this. Does Bob gamble? Because mm, there's a lot oh, of sure. gam- there's a lot of gambling imagery in his songs. That's right. Uh, you know, and yeah. Speaking of the Jokerman mindset, you have the cover of Fallen Angels. You got like the cards there. You've got like uh, so many songs with gambling. Like, is Bob after this show putting on a fake beard, maybe sunglasses, a hat, and hitting the D- hitting doubtful the black- that he's going to the casino? But uh, it's well established that they would play poker on the tour bus. A lot. There's pictures, photographic evidence. That's right, yeah. With this band around this time, I think, in the bus, everyone huddled around a little table playing cards together. But I, yeah. in my Bob Dylan fan fiction, because I like to do <laughs> Bob Dylan fan fiction on this show every now and then. Because, you know, you look at the professional poker world, and they all wear disguises at the table. Yeah. Like, Bob could do that. He could wear a disguise, and people could just be like, who's this weasened little man who's <laughs> playing poker he's got the fake beard on and like the ball cap and the shades i know that's probably not i don't happening. think he'd risk it i bet yeah, he's, he's a fantastic poker player he's probably great yeah Can you imagine? i mean literally like the man is famous for not being easy to read exactly <laughs> who would Although have a better t- poker face than bob dylan <laughs> he's a terrible actor though maybe that's all put on for the gambling that's the thing. You never know. You never know with him. So, oh, yeah, but I, if you watch him in feature films, you know. Well, that's it. I think, I think the wooden, uh, completely distant uh, lack of investment that he displays in such feature films as Mass and Anonymous actually would Hearts be of fire. a strong suit for him at the poker table because yeah. whenever cards come his way, <laughs> he's, he's not going to have any reaction whatsoever. He's you better know, in Mass and Anonymous than in Hearts of Fire. Well, yeah. I mean, come on. Of course. But although Hearts of Fire... Again, if you just like want to, uh, if, if you want to play multi-dimensional chess with mm. in, a, in a Dylanology sense, you could say that he was consciously creating a role that would be regarded as a campy cult classic forty go. years later. In the way, knowing that podcasters would want to talk about it, if it was just a exactly. straightforward <laughs> film about a washed-up musician, people. It might have just gone, you know, in one year out the other. I'm going back to my fan fiction scenario. I'm 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 putting it at five percent chance that that's what he does when he goes to Atlantic City, puts on the fake beard and sunglasses and and hat, and maybe I we can it. have a confirmation from somebody out there. Uh, 
because I don't know. I, I want to believe that, that, that that's true, even though 95% chance that it's not true. I'm giving it a 5% chance. I'm going to give that a 0.5% chance. Fair <laughs> I enough. I think that's uh, highly unlikely. So you guys are saying there's a chance. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> back to the show here and this is i'll bring up something i brought up earlier about the love and theft versus time out of mind question because going over to my second disc of the cdrs because i Mm. do think that the back half of the show i love this whole show but the back half of the show i think is especially strong and my my second disc my second disc begins with high water Mm. and i feel like from that point especially on it's just fire after fire and it yes. made me think about you know because you have you have you have high water you have like summer days where it just goes berserker in the last three minutes just mm-hmm. rocks so hard just a great guitar jam I mean that might be the single best part of the show for me like I'm just, with you on that the, the end of summer days is so exciting and the band sounds amazing but it made me think about love and theft versus time out of mind and how I think. I prefer Time Out of Mind slightly as an album, but as a source of live material. Love and Theft, I'm going to say, I'm tempted to say is clearly superior. I don't know if I want to go that hard, but Love and Theft as like, those songs live are so great. And this show really reminded me of like just how many songs from that record work great in a concert context even a song like moonlight which i don't know how you guys feel about that song i love that song. i love it it's fantastic it's a and dry a- run it's a dry run for the sinatra records It's a pretty good stuff for a pick for me. I mean, I think that when that happens also on this set, it's uh, such a breath of fresh air. It's a, It comes... Uh, the sequencing and uh, of the set list, I think, is really good on this show. Um, like, there's moments when I was, like, audibly... I was listening to it on the way driving up to uh, Joshua Tree and um, on the way back 
I listened to the second half and uh, I had no idea what was on it uh, at the time. So I was just kind of like trying to stay. It helped me stay awake too. It was really tired driving at one point. And um, just the thrill of like going from uh, trying to get to heaven into the, the really great stuck inside a mobile and then just straight into Tweely D. I was like shouting out loud um, and then into fucking Blind Willie McTell. Oh, Tweedledee yeah. into Blind Willie. That Tweedledee is great, too. That's another just love and theft killer from this show. And like Moonlight, you know, if I had to pick another great moment, the harmonica solo at the mm. end of that song. Because I, I mean, that performance, I think, is so spellbinding. But then the harmonica part, I think I did do what Evan did. Or I was like, oh, yes. Like, I think I exclaimed. Hooting and hollering. During that part. <laughs> Hooting and like, hollering. Because I was like, Bob, you had me. And then, like, you fucking took it to the next level. We've uh, we've talked about love and theft. We've talked about time out of mind. I gotta I gotta get my my brilliant new hot fire taken here mm. at this point. Uh, can I guess what it is? What was your I, guess? I, I'm gonna guess that you're like I wish that uh, that love and theft was produced by Daniel Lanois. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> okay, that, if I anything, I wish. Like, what's a hot take? Like, if anything, I wish that uh, love and theft, excuse me, time out of mind had only been produced by Jack Frost instead of a joint production between sure. him and Daniel Lanois. <laughs> the collaboration, oh. the yeah, in, in, in tandem with. I uh, don't want to get sucked into like a Daniel Lanois because that's like a whole other uh, uh, conversation. Because well, we got the yeah, fragments uh, coming out soon. I guess fragments has just come out as the as of this uh, this record, uh, or excuse me, this episode running it came out yesterday. So uh, you know, everyone can hear the difference between the Dan Lan factor and the lack of Dan Lan. Well, and at some point, I don't know what show we're going to do it on, if it's this one or if it's on Jokerman proper, but we got to do the Robbie Robertson self-titled, you know, ultimate Daniel Lanois experience album. What's that? His self-titled record, 1988. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's 87. That is like the ultimate, that's the ultimate Dan Lan. The ultimate Dan Lan is his own music. It's the Daniel Lanois but no, like Rob. But the self-titled though has U two on it, has Peter Gabriel. It's like you're, the Avenger, right. yeah. the it Avengers is. of eighties Daniel Lanois productions coming together to make the most over-the-top album of all time. <laughs> the most uh, ambitious Daniel Lanois crossover event. The most yeah, Lanois yeah. Lanois that ever Lanois. That's what that record is. Anyway, see, we're getting sidetracked. I yes. don't mean to do that. What What is your hot, hot take, Ian? You've You've like built up. The hottest of takes. Well, now Can it's you not even the heat here. It's well, what, what it's going to fall flat on its face. Uh, Why? But, so so people conceive of Bob Dylan albums 
as trilogies, right? Mm. You know, we've all we've all thought about the Electric the trilogy, trilogy, right? We've talked we thought about the Change trilogy. We thought about the <laughs> um, uh, the Christian trilogy. We've nobody about knows the, what the Change trilogy is. The listeners know what the Change we'll trilogy later. is. Yeah. Uh, we've know. thought about the American Songbook trilogy and stuff. People also often conceive of Time Out of Mind, Love and Theft, and Modern Times as a trilogy, right? That's kind of like the the standard. Uh, evaluation of latter-day Bob stuff. Time Out of Mind is the big comeback. Mm-hmm. Love and Theft delivers on that promise. And then Modern Times is a really kind of simmered down, um, uh, a distinct, sophisticated take on all that stuff. Bob himself has claimed that Love and Theft was actually the beginning of a trilogy, uh, comprising Love and Theft, Modern Times, and t- together through life, for whatever reason. I'm I here, agree with that. I agree with that. I'm, I'm, with here, I'm here to say the real trilogy mm. is consisting of the three records that are so well represented in this set the trilogy begins with under the red sky the middle part of the trilogy is time out of mind and love and theft is the conclusion of the trilogy you just made steve go no 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 that was that wasn't that wasn't what sounded disgusting no 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 that wasn't that wasn't mm. uh, it was uh it sounded it like a, you you just like lifted up a rock and saw something <laughs> gross under it well so I, absolutely not no 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 i love that I, I love integrating under the red sky into any conversation just like i love that we're we're so under the red sky heavy wait, 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 uh, i say this again so, uh, under the red sky then under the red sky is the first part of the trilogy time out of mind is the second part of the trilogy love and theft is the third part of the trilogy because as we discovered in our under the red sky revisited episode a couple months ago right. on it's Jokerman proper it's proper... the first jack frost production and mm-hmm. it's sa- the songs sound like these kind of blues songs that bob is trying to write on love and theft and the way the record came out the way under the sky came uh, under the red sky came out initially the production was all fucked up. Coming after Oh Mercy, it just sounded weird. The sequencing was kind of off. He left off some great songs, um, like Dignity. Um, and so Time Out of Mind is him reacting super hard against that and bringing in, bringing back mm-hmm. in Dan Land to be a really heavy, hard-driving force who can produce a really cohesive-sounding record the way that Under the Red Sky was not. And Bob discovers during the recording of that record as well, this is not my thing. And finally, by the time he gets to Love and Theft, Love and Theft is like the synthesis of Under the Red Sky and Time Out of Mind, where it is all of these blues, standard kind of sounding songs, like Cats in the Well, which sounds like a Love and Theft song played in this context, in this 04 show. Uh, It's got that kind of songwriting style. It's also got the really cohesive, uh, super fine-tuned production that you get on Time Out of Mind from Danland. But Bob is able to do it by himself at that point. And so he's finally able to fulfill this vision that he'd been driving towards well, for the preceding decade. And that's why the Under the Red Sky songs, I think, sound so great in this context. It's because they're coming from the same exact place that the Love and Theft songs uh, come from. You're not wrong on some level. Okay. Uh, I just want to make – that's totally valid. Okay. I will, however, <laughs> valid. point out Thank you. that you are you – are, I don't know whether you're – You've thought through this second part of what you've just done, but Mm. now you've changed the next trilogy. (laughs) So that means that the next trilogy would be... Modern Times. uh, Modern Times, Together Through Life. And Tempest. Tempest? Or Christmas in the Heart, if we want to call that the end of the trilogy. Come on, man. Okay, well... Come on. I want to go back. uh, Let's let's not go back first. I'm sorry, Stephen. I just have to... 
I have to collect my thoughts. This is he just laid out a lot on the table. <laughs> well, while, you, so while I, you're thinking, can I just like because you said that under the red sky, that's that, that's Don was though. That's not Jack Frost, right? No, Jack Don? Frost Jack makes Don. Jack Frost does make his first appearance in the credits on that record. Okay, Don was like, was producing some of it, but that was the first instance of the Jack Frost moniker. Because you have Don was the most mediocre producer of like old, of boomer rock records of this era. Like if Don was <laughs> is in there, you know you're going to hear something very mid. So you have him. You have Daniel Lanois. <laughs> Shots fired. Daniel Lanois. What? A tourist oh. genius. <laughs> Call him more like Don was, because he just killed him. <laughs> <laughs> Don is. It's not Don is, it's Don was. Um, and then you have Lanois. You know, I think with Love and Theft, it's really like the first like never-ending tour like studio album. It's mm-hmm, like where mm-hmm. Bob is like, I'm going mm-hmm. to make a record that sounds like I do on the road. And that is the beginning yes. of what he does in the 21st century. And that's what we have. Yeah. For the, so it is important in that regard. It, so if you want to say it's like, you could say that that's a trilogy if you wanted to find it under that sky, time out of mind, and love and theft as a journey out of producers exactly into his own thing. I can buy that. I can buy okay, that. As a I would trilogy. say so. So what you I think that um, under the red sky and um, time out of mind that's sort of like like watch the throne and like kids see ghosts or whatever, like those like, you know, collab (laughs) records by like, uh, but uh, where you've got like two, uh, artists. Cause that, you know, what, why I think Dylan made a point of calling the trilogy, um, designating a trilogy starting with, uh, love and theft is because for him, it's the first time that he is fully working solely with his, friend and collaborator jack frost and that marks a very stark point of the new a new era and so um that is a really interesting um and a well significant reason to mark it there however i i think uh you've drawn attention anyway to an important context of how that happened which is that there is kind of this phantom trilogy or phantom trilogy or a duology <laughs> leading up to the full flower and emergence of Jack Frost as a creative force in the Bob Dylan uh, discography. Well, what I was going to say is together through life is the curveball here because that's not really a never ending tour album that, that that's him working with like, it's not his touring band. He's assembled this, crew of musicians and uses them in a very weird way like david hildago from uh los lobos, los lobos on the, the accordion. Accordion. What, 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 like a great guitar player let's just have you put accordion on every guy every song, song. <laughs> uh so in my mind i was almost trying to think of can i make under the red sky and together through life a duology mm, ah. and maybe maybe i'll theorize on that one because because those two records they they stand out to me as like sore thumbs in the middle of progressions like if, right. like if you took under the red sky out and you had okay oh mercy into time out of mind then you could be like this is the daniel lanois era but then you mm-hmm. have this and we're not even counting the acoustic records here records, either yeah. in, in in the trilogies here uh and together through life it, it, this isn't a criticism i'm just saying they they stand out in these progressions as not quite fitting what becomes before and after yeah so well. So maybe there, there's a duology there. The Sore Thumbs duology of Under the Red Sky 
and uh, together, together through, through life. life. I think that makes I, I'm sense. I'm going to pause at a, a secret third thing here that uh, is that Down in the Groove is actually the prequel to Under the Red Sky because, <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, rather, Down in the Groove is, uh, how do I put this? Together Through Life is the sequel to Down in the Groove. And I'll tell you that the reason why is because they both feature a collaboration with Robert Hunter. Robert Hunter. Ah, Okay, it's the Hunter verse. You know, so, it's all connected. We've got a whole fucking like <laughs> billboard of red pins with strings drawn between them at this point. All and right. we're all just fighting with which which red strings we want to <laughs> yeah, use. Exactly. I'm going to uh, each brought our own string. I'm going to bring us back to the show here with the uh, with, with the because <laughs> I think we're done with the uh uh with, with what we liked about the show with the the pretty good stuff right let me get one more in for pretty good stuff and this actually returns i wanted to follow on to what evan brought up uh, earlier on in this section which was the singing just one other notable thing here we know this is bob in the middle of his first stint on the piano right this is also of the shows that we've talked about so far which is only the three of them but this is the first and like super crystal clear example of the 21st century, the latter-day Bob Dylan vocal style, the up-singing at the end of all of these verses. Oh, and you hear that the- on so many of these songs mm-hmm. all the way through. Uh, Tweedly Dee and Tweedly Dum, Rolling Stone, I Shall Be Released. It's, uh, you know, it's a... It's Especially perhaps- on I Shall Be Released. Yeah, yeah exactly. perhaps the defining element of the vocal delivery of Bob over the last 20, 25 years. And this is such a, um, you know, because this is just about the same, I guess this is seven years after um, the first show that we did, which was five years after the show um, that we, the second show that we did, the 92 to 97, 97 to 2004. It's a similar time frame, and yet the vocal delivery here in 2004 compared to 97 is radically more different than it was between 97 and 92. So this is really, you know, a, a great crystal clear example of like this whole new direction that he's found as a singer at this moment in time. So are you saying the up singing is in pretty good stuff? I'm saying it's in pretty good stuff. Are you about to take oh, us yeah, into oh mercy am. with that comment? No, no, I'm not. I, but I, I think the up singing at some point will be, in Oh Mercy. It wasn't bothering me here, but I know that's a controversial thing. Right. With Dylan fans not loving the up singing. It wasn't bothering me. You know, I'm going to talk about uh, I Shall Be Released a little bit later, but I, I I enjoyed that version. Getting into the Oh Mercy section. Take us there. Oh Mercy. Oh Mercy. Oh Mercy. Okay, so I'm going to throw something out here that is maybe a little... You know, we got high t- hot takes here. I think this might be hotter than your take. Uh-oh. And I'm... I'm picking nits here a little bit because I don't think that there's an obvious weak spot 
in this show. I, I also I don't think feel that, that way. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think there's an obvious clunker. So I'm really I'm picking nits here with this. But I will say that there's a song on my first disc of the CDR that it's an example of a Bob Dylan song that I think the recorded version is the best one. Mm. And I tend not to love live versions of it. And that's Stuck Inside a Mobile. Really? Yes, again, this is nitpicking. I might be reaching here just to have something to talk about in this slot because I don't hate this version. But if I were to just talk about my favorite things from the show, this would be towards the bottom, probably. This Interesting. performance. So I just think that the blonde on blonde version, the Kenny, the Kenny buttery drums are like such a big part of that mm. performance. I just love the drums are just so brilliant on there, and uh, I, I think live versions tend to drag a little in comparison to that. So mm-hmm. not saying I hate it, and I'm acknowledging I'm nitpicking here. I'm picking nits. But if I had to pick one thing that was no mercy, it would probably be that. Am I way off base with that? It, I yeah, I, I see where you're coming from on that. I, I actually think it, it fits into, you know, a lot of the high points on this record, which or this this bootleg, which for me, like the really up tempo kind of bluesy uh, uh, rock and roll kind of music from the Blues Assassin and company. Uh, is the high point, and I think um, uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile in this kind of instantiation works better than it could in previous versions of the band or later versions of the band, so I actually kind of like hearing it here along with like Highway, for instance, which is really fun. Uh, but I do, you know, at the same time, it doesn't have that, uh, you know, that thin, that wild Mercury sound, as uh, Bob is re- uh, reported to have said, although there's no recording of him ever actually describing it that way. Um, so it, uh, you know, it's not one of my favorite picks, I think, in, uh, in the discography for showing up, but as far as the song, if, like, if I have to hear Stuck Inside a Mobile being played, like, this version of the band, you know, is one of the better versions of that, I think, that, that we could hope for. I felt like, I know what you mean, Stephen, I, I de- and I definitely feel that way about a handful of songs that we'll, pro- we'll definitely get to at various points, uh, in the future. Um, I just thought that he sounds, like, really uh energized on this one so uh, even though it's maybe not the uh same imaginative uh journey as the original it it feels really um vi- vivid and lively i thought if, if not this song then w- is there anything you would put in this slot yeah i also had a hard time you know figuring out what the, what would go in here because there is, there wasn't an obvious kind of like stumble the way that there was on i think the first two shows this is a more i don't know that the highs on this show are quite as high as you get on those 92 or 97 shows but the lows are also not not nearly as low this is more of kind of an even mm. keel thing for me if i'm going to pick a nit if there, if something has to go here it would be um high water 
which is one of my absolute favorite songs of Bob's of all time. Like Love and Theft is my number one Bob Dylan album with the bullet. There's no question. And that's like one of my favorite songs off the, off the record in general. Um, but the way that they put it across here, it's just kind of, ugh. you know, it doesn't have yeah, the, the, the same exciting, thrilling, like that rolling thunder kind of drum sound that you get on the record is completely absent here. Um, and compared to some of the other Love and Theft material, like Honest With Me, for instance, or Summer Days, like we talked about earlier, it just doesn't, I mean, this is a rave up, it's a rocker, it's an exciting, like, kick-ass, like, fuck yeah kind of song. And here, compared to those other two Love and Theft songs and a couple of the other ones that we get, you know, from the back catalog, it just doesn't, it doesn't mm. pull it for me the way that it does on the record. Actually, more to say it, and I'm I'm listening to it now. I I don't because there's the part where he says, "Throw your panties overboard," and what am I going to do? Argue with that? Where he says, <laughs> yeah. "Throw your panties overboard," and he sounds like he's like got like a, a chicken gizzard as for a throat. He's uh, I like the more like kind of tossed off version of this. Actually, I I, I think when we talked about the song on the record, I. I was. I'm not a big fan of those. Yeah, you don't really rumbling like drums. Um, I I kind of like it as like a like a horny, dirty, tossed off number, like it is here. Actually, yeah. I like I said, my disc two starts with high water, and it is a great intro to that disc. I love the high water from this show. All so right. I I disagree with that. Again, even my own stuck in. Stuck inside a mobile take. I am not totally committed to that. I it's because I like listening to it on this show. I think it's just a relative, you know, distinction to make compared to like what else is on here. It drags slightly for me compared to the rest of the show. But again, there's no obvious weakness here. Yeah, I, you know, everything is three stars. There might be something that's like two and three quarter stars. If you no, really no, no, wanna, no. There's nothing really like that. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna implement the half. Stars. No, 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 no. We, we, <laughs> come on, See, that's two to three yeah. stars. That's like, that's like too much of a gulf. This of, is gonna you know, tear this, this. is gonna tear no, this podcast. That's apart. the point. That the whole point of the three stars and no well, halves is that you it forces you to. Um, Make a make a call that Sophie's later, choice then, of sorts. Yeah, then no. later we have something to talk about when you when you bump it up or down. You can't otherwise. What's the point? Uh, making, okay, well, okay. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the half mm. or the three quarters in parentheses 
Mm. I'm going to say two stars, parentheses, three-quarter stars. And you can decide to ignore <laughs> no, no, the parentheses no. if, if you're you going to be on this show, you got to understand that there's no such thing. There's take no it or leave thing. it, Evan. Take it or leave it, Evan. No, this you is have the way to it take is. it or leave it, Stephen. Because the way that this works is that you have to defend... It's it, all right, If I'm going to lay out just the, for the people who are new, the three-star system developed because um, it's it's stupid to do one to ten. We know that, and and it's, well, here's the it's really stupid to do point ten point nine point something eight point two six point seven. You know we don't like that, right? And so doing a half star is basically just a disguised version of doing that style. You know, going a it's half, not three as... quarters. You're just doing. You're just doing pitchfork in a in a disguise. You gotta, uh, see, that's a low blow. <laughs> but that's so, what it that's is. That's a low blow. That's no, why I, we do it the stupid way we do it. I'm just going to say that I think the parentheses system works because people can decide if they want to ignore it or not. All I'm doing is mm. providing a little more context. A little additional context. For that's the fair. opinion. Yeah. Anyway, the larger point being, as we were saying, there's no real obvious weak points here. If you want to say, oh, this high water isn't as good as the record or stuck inside a mobile isn't as good as the record, it's still really good. Yeah, no one here is saying this shit is bad by any, like, this is all, like, I as, as you know, negative as I was on high water in my description of it, I still love hearing it, and this song still kicks ass. It just, like, doesn't thrill me the way that I know that it can in other contexts, but, you know, I'm certainly not going to turn my nose up at it. In other words, Let's, you're saying it's two stars out of three. There pretty you go. good. Very sure. good, in fact. <laughs> pretty, All right, I'll, pretty good. I'll, say, <laughs> I'll say two stars, parentheses, half star for the stuck inside a mobile. Two um, out of three. <laughs> if you decide to ignore the parentheses. If you want to acknowledge the parentheses, you can if you want. Um, let's get to the Budokan section. because. Yes. hard as it was to pick a bad i actually thought it was hard to pick this too i don't the, i agree the, the also best, huh? i could the best the best answer i could come up with for the budokan like reimagining was the i shall be released because of the up singing okay and because i had that on there down. it's and it's turned into more of this uh sort of country-ish type song gentle country rock, um, right? i also I, I was trying to make a case for the trying to get to heaven rendition just because it is slower and again, mm-hmm. more of like a country rock feel than what's on the record. But that's not really Budokan level type. It, it, certainly not compared to like what we've had already, like that 92 show especially. I mean, right. there's nothing that comes close to what he was doing there in terms of reimagining songs. I don't know, Evan, was there a song that you felt like he was really yeah. changing it up? Well, it's a it's a little thing in some ways, but actually I thought it was a really major one in others, which is... Actually, All Along the Watchtower. Wow. Because the way that he ends All Along the Watchtower here is not a way I've ever heard him end it before and is better than the way that he ends it on the actual record, I think. Um, If you notice, the last thing he says here is not, uh, as the the record version goes, um, you know, the the wind began to howl, I believe is the last lines, right? Mm -hmm. Here... It ends with this very dramatic, and none of them know what any of it is worth. And it's like this big swelling crescendo at the end, which is like such a powerful way to end. And it's a better way to end the song, I think. It like really takes it home.
answered our next question, which is the Watchtower Watch. Watchtower Watch. There must be some way out of here. There yeah, we're folks. three for three, and uh, I agree with you. I, uh, you know, especially having Watchtower at the end, you're like, oh wow, let's end this sh- show uh, like one song early. We don't even have to listen to the last song. <laughs> you can head for the exits, beat the traffic. Uh, yeah, but it would have uh, been a mistake if they left no, early. But... I agree. I think it's a good Watchtower. I mean, it's. It, as much as you can say that about this song, that it's not going to just be what you expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something, too, like at the end of Lay, Lady, Lay, I feel like he's he does something a little bit different at the end of that song, too. Like yeah. He ends it, it. And the crowd who goes wild when he does yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, so great. Yeah, it's, he just he throws in an extra line. He says, uh, you know, uh, Lay, Lady, Lay, stay while the night is still ahead. And while you're at it, you can lay across my big brass bed. And everyone yeah. just, like, screams. I love that moment. That's, like, maybe my favorite vocal delivery in the entire show. So, yeah, so I guess there's some small Budokan moments in those two songs. Two very kind of, you know, Warhorse type Dylan numbers being tweaked a little bit. I've got another yeah, candidate. Su- for, subtly polished. I've got another candidate for Budokan moment, uh, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you guys are going to, going to agree with, but knowing that it's not as clear what the most radical reinterpretation is of a song here uh, on this set. And speaking of other old warhorses, I would say it's actually Rolling Stone to me. And not because of the way that it sounds necessarily, because uh, it does still follow the same melody, although it is more piano-driven. Bob really kind of comes to the forefront on this one, um, and you can really hear his piano playing versus some of the other songs. You know, he kind of just is singing. Uh, but more because of the way that it feels. <laughs> I'm 
about the, this song, like the signature, I mean, to me, the signature live cut of Rolling Stone is Live 66, uh, which is, you know, maybe the greatest single like rock and roll song performance ever, you know, ever by anyone. Um, and just the the venom and the the energy and the precision and the murderous intent behind that song, the way it was performed all throughout 66 and with that band is so signature to it. And here this, at this point in 2004, it's become sort of like a happy, like audience, crowd-pleasing sing-along kind of song. And I think that has a lot to do with the upsinging, to be honest, because instead of ending each mm-hmm. of these verses with this really sharp, like vicious kind of line, right? How does it feel? Uh, the way that Bob puts it across with the upsinging, like it almost, you know, you're almost kind of like bopping along, uh, along your jolly way, singing along with him here. And it feels like something to almost like to celebrate, basically, instead of uh, instead of to, to condemn the subject. Obviously, if you listen to lyrics, it's <laughs> the lyrics to Rolling Stone, so that isn't well, the case. But just the feeling overall of this song at this point is so radically changed from where it used to be and where it was in the past that, uh, to me, I think that's the most radical reinterpretation we get here. That's a good point, and I actually kind of agree but disagree. I mean, I think that it does. He's finding a new... Uh, finding new levels or um, gears to the emotional uh, this emotional spectrum of the song. He's exploring like different subtleties within it here, and I actually think it feels really kind of profound in a way um, to choose a different uh, to have it not be the choice of like righteous anger, and instead have this kind of um, this almost wistful quality yeah. to the song. It, it opens it up in this way that feels like a bit sadder, actually, but um, more open and um, more tragic, more sympathetic to to the subject of the song, actually. And to the singer. Yeah. It, it took, the way that it feels, like the mood and the tone of this version makes me feel like he's, he's almost saying, um, like there before the grace of god go i like you know mm. i could have been like th- it's more like it's like the end of idiot wind instead of the beginning of idiot wind. right and exactly we are idiots babe not you're an idiot babe it, yeah it's a good point I, that is like a good comparison it feels a bit more sage like and um i i think it just speaks to something that really separates bob from his contemporaries in that he has never been afraid of sounding his age right and letting his age inform how he's going to interpret the songs that he wrote when he was younger and mm-hmm. we should mention that at the time of the show he had just turned 63 mm-hmm. like two weeks earlier so so you know he's in his early 60s at this point and it's not like Mick Jagger singing a signature Rolling Stone song where the idea is for him to create the illusion that he's still in his 20s right. singing Satisfaction or Jumping Jack Flash. When Bob Dylan sings Like a Rolling Stone, it doesn't have the venom that he had as a 24-year-old because now he's 63 and he is a different point in his life and he can let how experiences in his life, it, it, it's changed how he approaches the song. And of yep. course he wouldn't sing it the way he did in 1965. And it just it explains why we are doing this project because exactly. a song as codified in the Dylan mystique as Like a Rolling Stone can become a different song. 
I'm starting to think, you know, we're early on in this project, but, you know, one of the things that I think we're always drawn to is Bob playing songs that we haven't heard many times. We're, we're drawn to the novelties. We're drawn to, uh, you know, really radical reimaginings of songs. And that is definitely a fun thing uh, to explore on this show. But I think one way to gauge the quality of a show is like how engaged is Bob in the songs that he plays all the guys Standards, time. exactly. And I think when we talk about this show, one of the strengths of it is that All Along the Watchtower is actually really good, and that Highway 61 Revisited mm-hmm, is actually mm-hmm. like really good, really fiery version of that. And like a Rolling Stone, it's not just phoning it in. And in a way, that's like harder to do. Totally. Yeah. Like these, these songs that are so standard that he could still make even people like us who have listened to like a lot of live versions engaged with it and excited by it you know that maybe is like almost like the truest sign that a show is really delivered that's totally. right it's yeah, like, like his family it's like these songs are like family members that like they it can be the most uncomfortable it can there can be these like hardened kind of resentments or uh blocked channels of you know you you're so familiar with them, but you don't really feel like you can say anything new to each other. And when talking about family he, members or podcast co-hosts, or, uh, <laughs> same same thing. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's moments where he manages to break that, um, and it feels like he's looking the songs in the eye. That's the best moments um, often on the shows, and it feels like you know those songs are so great that like they can look back at him and it seems like he's actively having this conversation this um reassessment with the song and he's figuring out something new about this thing he knows like the back of his hand and that we are watching that and being affected in a new way even though it's something that we thought we knew just as well Man, this song's so great. I'm listening to it right now. I love it. Like yeah, like Rolling Stone, song. folks. Pretty good song. <laughs> yeah, pretty good song. Uh, in terms of Bob talk, it's just when he introduces the band, right? That's right. Was there anything else that he, he does? Says? He does call. Uh, he's introducing the band. You know, everyone giving everyone their their due. And uh, then when he gets to George, George Roselli on the drums, he says, and "The best drummer on the stage, George Roselli." Uh, he calls George the best drummer, dot dot dot, on this stage, and yes. gives the audience yeah. a good laugh, as if <laughs> as if he's going to call George the best drummer in the world or the best drummer I've ever played with. No, just just the best drummer who happens to be on stage with him uh, Bob. There that night. This he's is a funny they, guy. That's why they call you the trickster, Bob. That's right, the Joker man. Um, the Joker Bobby, man. Bobby's trick. Exactly. Well, that might be a good lead into. Uh, early Roman king. For me, at least, uh, you guys might have uh, differing opinions. I'm guessing, actually, I, th- I think I know what direction you're going to go, Stephen, based on some of your previous comments. But for me, Early Roman King, MVP of this show, of this band this evening, it's, it's George on the drums. He yeah, is all same. over the place. 
and is able to dial into whatever kind of mode and mood he needs to be in at any given point, sometimes within the same song. Um, he can go as soft and, and gentle as he needs to, like on Trying to Get to Heaven or Moonlight, for instance, and really just kind of recede into the background and allow Bob and the other players to take the forefront. Uh, but at the same time, he can also just go absolutely huge and fill the entire room. Uh, on Stuck Inside a Mobile, actually, I think the, like the fills that he's dropping are absolutely incredible, and that's part of why I love that song, um, or you know the, the, this version of the song. Um, and then some of the dynamism in a couple of the other tracks, like on Tweedly Dee and Tweedly Dumb, during the verses, he's like really tight, really small, really, really nimble. And then when it launches into the solos, you know, that signature, you know, deedly, deedly, deedly song or sound, um, he's just all over the place. <laughs> same thing on honest with me like which is almost has this like kind of disco you know kind of stomp beat during the verses he's really high on the cymbals uh and then he just explodes at the end of the verses along with the refrain it's um i don't know it's it's stunning as far as i'm concerned and that just to follow up on some of the commentary i delivered on old david kemper that's what i meant (laughs) i didn't mean to call david kemper middle of the road as in untalented just his playing style wasn't quite as thrilling to me as someone like Winston, or in this case, like George, uh, who uh, I think is killing it here. He's also my pick. I mean, basically same thing uh, for me. I just feel like there's moments that are genuine that really pop out out of the whole set list because they they feel like, um, you know, as often happens when like a really vibrant and powerful drummer is behind uh, an artist especially when it's like an older artist like dylan here it it feels like uh sort of like backup like like life support like it like he's eating his spinach and he goes like super saiyan or whatever it uh makes you kind of completely like if you, if you thought that you were going to see 63 year old man up on that stage and then you like hear like the most fiery moments of the set you would just be like Never mind. Like I, I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. This was. It's so. It it takes years off his life. I mean, his age in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it adds yeah. years to his George to his life. Literally killing him on stage. He's <laughs> poisoning him slowly to death with his the opposite rhythms. Um. So I have a couple nominations, and all due respect to George, I would talk about George, but you guys just said everything that needs to be said about him. I think you got to nominate Larry Campbell for this. Mm. And again, just him being a utility player in the band at this point, his pedal steel playing is beautiful throughout. It really is a big part of the music on the show. I'm going to nominate Bob Dylan's harmonica. Wow. For right. Early mm. Roman King. Cause again, I, I, you know, just hearing him play harp uh, is always a great thing. And, and it also adds a lot in particular to moonlight. One of my favorite moments of the show. 
But as far as my earlier Roman King, I got to go with Stu Kimball. I knew it was going to be Stu for you. And look, I think his playing is great, but you also have to give him props for it being like his third gig with the show, man. That's and totally like, true. And I would not have guessed that listening to this. I, I would not have thought that this band was just now coming together. There's no sign of rust. This is actually like a really great period, I think, for uh, the Never Ending Tour band. Because you have this show, and again, we have that Bonnaroo show coming up five days after this, which we're going to talk about at some point. Because that's just like a wonderful show. Iconic Cold Irons Bound from that show. Very mm-hmm. famous version. Mm-hmm. And you can really hear uh, my man, the blues assassin, picking people off left and right, like Bradley Cooper in American <laughs> Sniper. With his sure. with his fiery blues licks, uh, yeah. it's, 50, it's his fifty gal his fifty caliber guitar. <laughs> so I really think that the circumstances of this show elevates Stu for me. You know, maybe if I didn't know the backstory, I would have gone with Larry Campbell and maybe George Rosselli. But just knowing how he had only auditioned, you know, like what, like a week earlier or something, and now he's on stage and he's killing it already. It's really admirable, I think. Uh, so, yeah, Stu, ERK, baby. Not going to get any disagreements here. Uh, and also, uh, Tony Garnier on the bass. <laughs> we love Tony, folks. Yeah, Tony is the <laughs> ultimate. I feel like Tony's always getting short shrift from us so far. Well, and again, like, you know, uh, when we heard this in our last episode talking about how J.J. Jackson ended up in the band, Tony Garnier is the one who reaches out to That's Stu. That's a good point. Slips him the number. Bada bing, bada boom, he's in the band. So Tony is just like... He's also like the consigliere. He is. He's not just the musical director. He's also like recruiting new members into the cult, bringing them in. And uh, so, yeah, he's the madam. He's 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 Bob's Heidi Fleiss, if you will. Just bringing in new <laughs> yeah. recruits. It's beautiful. So, yeah, Tony... Uh, I don't know. It's just like it's like him and Bob are like unspoken ERKs, so we almost don't even have to give it to them. But I'm glad you brought that up. We have to tip our wide brim hats to Tony. Yeah, That's right. Friends. Certainly, a man who can wear a wide brim hat, if ever there was one. Wear the hell out of it. Wear the hell out of it. I've got a segment uh, that we haven't done yet, um, and it's probably it's probably because this is this might go down as the least exciting. Uh, edition of of how's the weather mm. because on june 6 2004 in atlantic city the high was 62 and the low was 59 wow <laughs> normal the weather was normal the weather was normal <laughs> so it, okay, there's really nothing to say there and it just suits the consistency of this band Totally. Like you said before, that, not too hot, not right. too cold. They're just right. They're just right, baby. I wonder if you could Goldilocks. could you still smoke in casinos in 2004? I wonder if people were just absolutely. Like, we Evan and I were just in Vegas last week, and people are smoking in casinos today. So you were certainly the blowing darts inside the the Borgata in 2004. I bet you could in the theater. Very cloudy inside then. People, I hope so. People I were hope. smoking inside like the Bing and Sopranos around this time on TV. I'd, if it's a casino, it's got to be. Just a free for all. Well, I'm glad because then Christopher didn't have to walk out during Second Side of Mobile for a smoke break. He could stay there and smoke the entire show. God, you know? I really wish there would have been a 
a performance, you know, Bob, a, a, a Bob doing a performance on The Sopranos and the characters going to see him and all of them just being totally pissed that he wasn't playing any of the old shit and all of this new blues stuff. It's like, what, what the fuck is that guy doing up there? This is what we come here for. Hey, Tony. Yeah, probably hey. mad that he's not playing like uh, Hotel California. <laughs> hey, Tony, he played uh, like a Rolling he Stone. Junior. He didn't uh, play it like the record tone. <laughs> Good to understand. Uh, what was the name of Adriana's Club on The Sopranos? Oh shit, that's a good question. I can't the, remember the leopard, the, the leopard room or something like that. Something like that. Because Bob could have played Adriana's club. That would have been amazing. Anyway, yeah. are we? I think we're winding down here. The crazy horse. How could the we crazy forget horse. Yes. Neil, the, well, the, <laughs> the Neil Young reference Neil Young on the show? Yeah. Uh, um, yes, I think that uh, that's bringing it in for a close here. So, do we have uh, do we have star rankings for Bob Dylan? At the Borgata Hotel, Casino, and Spa Event Center in Atlantic City, New Jersey, on June 6, 2004. Evan, it's your show. It's your, your, your pick first. I think this is what you call a... Jeez. Um, I mean, it's tough because it's just so... Sol- I will give it a two-star for the because it's so good and solid. Um, you know, that's sometimes two stars just means it's great. It's good. I have nothing nothing to say badly about it, but in this case, three stars is, you know, I'm going to be, for three, you'll know when it's three star. I'm going to be like, um, I'm going to be wiping drool off my keyboard. By the <laughs> way, we didn't, we didn't uh, do stars for our, for the May 9th, 1992 show. Do we just want to do the stars for that quick? Or are we going to do that a mystery? I'm going to say three stars. I'll say, sure. Uh, yeah, I'll say three stars for that. Okay. That was quick. <laughs> um, for this show. Yeah, I'm going to say two stars, parentheses a quarter star, but just to irritate Evan, I'll put the quarter star parentheses in there. But no, I agree. I think three stars, we're going to be judicious with that. It shouldn't be given up That's very right. often. Um, well, just how you feel that day, you know, this is like right but I, now. But I think I think two stars is is zero stars on the table. Zero stars mad. is on the table, but only in the most rare of circumstances. Because like they, if we were like, talking about, because like if you say one star, that means you don't like it, right? But like two, that's not true. Okay, so I need to point out something so you understand. Because one star can mean like, yeah, it's really really good. But I just am not like over the moon about it. But it's one out of three. Well, you then can what's, also look what's at a bad it as, show then? Yeah, it can also be one star. <laughs> what's a bad one star? Show, can then? Be like, Oh come huh? on! Okay, no great. one star can be like, I, I, it's good, but I'm not like gonna oh. go crazy about it. It can also mean like I'm not really like it's good. Like it's it not can mean so whatever great. you fucking want it to mean, Stephen. You're build oh. you're building a sandcastle and the waves are coming in. Right now, man. <laughs> it's crumbling in your hands. As you're, no, you're, you, it just requires that you have a nimble and subtle mind. Uh, to a, to sort of always be thinking about. Well, we don't need to get personal here. Well, but a star system. I, I know you can't have that. So you've got you've got the you can you know how to hold, have two things can be true at once. But a, but a, but a star system typically is not built for nimble and subtle minds. It's like a it's a, a shorthand rating system for people who don't want to listen to like a 90 minute podcast this, is, this isn't about a uh like consumer guide thing this is like you know the michelin stars like they you only get a michelin star if you're already a pretty great restaurant like you get one that's like a big deal ba- major deal to get one to get 
two is, you know, you're in the top of the top. And the three is like you're the best restaurant in the world. So, so, you're, so the zero stars then is definitely a broad. That's probably the broadest of all because there's going to be a lot of shows that I mean aren't on the very good like, who don't deserve any stars. We yeah, might but need not to. really if it's Bob Dylan. You know, it's it's it, we're not going to be giving out zeros unless you're like really disappointed. But really, one star can like it just means that you don't feel over the moon. Two, two stars is like this is really great, but I I feel like there's something that I'll go crazier for. Or I I have, and then three stars is just in that moment, you just want to you want to scream it from the mountaintop. All right, we're gonna refine this. It's gonna, we're take, gonna refine this. It's gonna take it's a little getting you. It, listen, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is uh, Stu Kimball's third show with the band. This is our third show as a trio yeah. at this point. We're still working through some of the. Uh, some of the kinks and some of the well, how many here. how many stars do you give it, Ian? Two. If I okay. if I was given a parentheses, you know, I'd, I'd oh, give it on. two two and a half, and, something like that. And, but and, we're not allowed and, parentheses. No, no. Yes, you are. <laughs> See, we we can out, we can outvote Evan. We can bring in the parentheses. Well, that's right. It is a it is a, a trio now, so we can always do a two <clears throat> outvoting one. That's a good. Point. I think the yeah, parent- What I we're think- gonna do is we're gonna ask the listeners who who uh, they're, they're gonna. Decide if that's okay or not. All right, folks out there. Well, let them decide. I just want to make a case that the parentheses thing, it, I think it's a compromise. I think it's... Because you, could, you can choose... It compromises a perfect <laughs> You can No, but you can choose whether to ignore the parentheses or not. Like, if you, if, mm-hmm. you, if you feel like two stars is enough, ignore the parentheses. But if you're like, I would like a little bit more of like a pinpointed score here... You can embrace the parentheses. You know, I think it's a perfect system. I think everyone's happy. It's a perfect well, I think system. that basically you're right in that, well, the parentheses, from my perspective, is just everything we talked about leading up to those, the star ranking. Like, if you listen to the episode, then you'll know the context for why one of us might give it two or three or one. You know, that's sort of the implicit thing is that you listen to the show and then Every time we do that and we don't add the sort of caveat of parentheses or decimal points, we're, we're creating a more um, a sophisticated uh, and uh, an engaged listenership in regards to the stars. They're okay, thinking I, that the stars can mean a lot. It can mean so whatever you want it to mean, everyone. Everything okay. and nothing. We'll do a poll. We'll let the people decide. I have a feeling that they're going to agree with you, Evan, because you've been doing this for couple hundred episodes you've built up loyalty there may be some people out there who have been upset about the limitations of the star system mm. and now they feel like i am the uh you know savior i think yeah, like, we well, could well, have footnotes we could have like i think there can be a sort of star commentary like the talmud like the sort of rabbinical commentaries on the bible on the, the well Torah. i was gonna say i was so trying like, to f- that's was, that that i can get behind you know? i was trying to find an analogy here like i'm like martin luther Mm-hmm. Putting up the ninety-five theses on the wall here, there except it's about parentheses because uh, I'm Lutheran. I'm <laughs> the ninety-five Lutheran. parentheses. The ninety-five I, parentheses. I like, a, I like that idea. I mean, I, I think that we can even do that for the um, newsletter. We could have a, 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 se- a segment that's sort of a written um, breakdown of what this particular, a particular two star or three star means, and um, how that is. Um, sometimes a, a more complex thing perhaps well we'll leave we'll, we'll let the people decide we'll go from there everyone out there please make your voice heard <laughs> let us know 
<laughs> on this very essential <laughs> subject of whether or not parentheses are allowed in the three-star system. Thank you for joining us for Never Ending Stories, a podcast about Bob Dylan and the Never Ending Tour. Until next time. Don't you dare miss it.
Thank you.